everybody. You're listening to Chatting with Candice. I'm your host, Candice Horback. Before we get started on this week's episode, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to chattingwithcandice.com and from there you can sign up for our Patreon account or click that link that says buy me coffee. Both things help to improve the quality of the podcast and eventually start getting some guests on. So this week, I'm really excited. I actually didn't think that this was going to happen. We have Gad Sad joining the podcast. We exchanged a couple of tweets and I thought it was all going to be a practical joke and that he never was going to, you know, actually make it on the podcast. But nonetheless, he is a man of his word and here he is. He is a professor, an evolutionary behavioral scientist, an author. He just came out with his newest book called The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. It is a 10 out of 10. I highly recommend it. You and all your friends should read it. I'll have a little link in the show notes where you can just redirect to Amazon and get yourself a copy. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy the episode. Gad Sad. Today we have Gad Sad joining the podcast. I'm so excited. Like I said earlier, I didn't think this was going to happen. We met on Twitter briefly and we exchanged some tweets and I was like, oh my gosh, he responded. And then I got like a little nudge on Rogan and I was like, say my name. And then you were like, I'm not going to say your name. And I was like, damn it, Sad. <laughs> well, I, was, I didn't know if it would happen or not and so on. So I didn't want to say your name and then somehow it would be embarrassing if I didn't come on your show. So I was trying to be discreet. No, totally. Yeah. But I had like everyone listening and they're like, oh my gosh, is this you? And I was like, yeah, I think so. But yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast today. I'm super excited to talk about your new book, The Parasitic Mind. Full disclosure, I'm at page like 113 and it is so good. I've been like suggesting it to everyone, especially on social media. So I guess what inspired you to write what is considered a pretty controversial book? At the start of the book, I talk about two great wars that I have faced in my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first great war was growing up in Lebanon uh, during the start of the civil war in Lebanon in the mid 70s. We are Lebanese Jews. And so it wasn't, it was no longer feasible to be Jewish in Lebanon. So that was the first exposure I had to what happens to a society that is organized based on identity politics. In this case, the identity that matters is your religious affiliation in Lebanon. So that was the first great war that I faced. The second great war is the one that I faced on university campuses, the war on reason, on common sense, on logic, on science. And that really has been a war that has been raging for my whole time in academia. So I've been a professor now. This is, I think, my 26th or 27th year. At first, it seems as though, oh, you know, maybe there are just some quack ideas out there, you know, in the humanities and in some of the social sciences. But then you quickly realize that these, what I call idea pathogens, these parasitic ideas, are actually making their way across all of the hallways of academia. And then eventually they make their way downstream to everything, to popular culture, to media, to politics. And so it's really, it was my indignation at seeing this attack on enlightenment values, on a commitment to reason that caused me to write the book. So how has that affected your career as a professor? Because you that's been a career path for 25 years, you said. So how have you not been canceled yet? <laughs> right. So I think it's a couple of factors. One is... Look at me. Who could cancel cancel this? You know, I think there is a a part of me that 
you know, I, I use the right persuasion strategies. I use a mix of, of course, very serious science, but also satire, partly mm-hmm. humor, part, that makes it a bit more difficult to come after me. I also think I'm protected by my identity, which is regrettable to say, because you'd like to think that you're not cancelable because you have great ideas. But in reality, while that might be true, it's also the fact that, you know, I'm the war refugee who's the, you know, Jew of color and so on because I'm from the Middle East. And so it makes it a lot harder for the people who use those kinds of victimology poker tactics to come after me. If I were Roscoe from Arkansas criticizing Islam, then it would be the end of me. But if I'm Gad Saad criticizing Islam, well, it's kind of harder. Arabic is my mother tongue and so on. So I think it's a combination of factors. It's also the fact that, frankly, I've not yet met someone who is able to go into the arena of debating me who's come out victorious. And that's one of the things that I talk about in the book, which is how do you construct arguments rooted in evidence rather than being hysterical. So I think for a combination of reasons, it's not been easy to cancel me. Also, I think that maybe I'm not protected from the, you know, too big to cancel. And again, maybe I'm being presumptuous, but I think anyone who wishes to cancel me will likely know that it's going to come at a cost. I'm not someone who, you know, kind of wilts away you know, in a fetal position. So if you're going to come after me, you know, you better be ready for a fight. And so for all those kinds of reasons, I'm still here. Right. You call it a honey badger, right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> so you had a really interesting story in the beginning of the book when you were talking about the men that came to your house for the paper towel role change, which is such an interesting job because I didn't know that was a job, but you told the story about how the house was filled with women and you were obviously a child at the time and there was one man in the house and he just was kind of acting like a coward. So would you say that kind of created one of those main like pillars of your belief systems, I guess, of like being brave and not being cowardly? Was like that man's cowardice in the situation? So certainly that was a formative experience that Mm -hmm. showed me the disdain that I would eventually have for cowardly people in general and certainly cowardly men. But I also think it's just the unique combination of my genes, right? I mean, you are the product of your unique genes, Mm -hmm. whatever that implies. And so anything that we are is really a combination of our genes and our environment. I, I just think that I am endowed with the right set of traits, maybe right, maybe wrong, because it actually brings me a lot of emotional pain to always have to fight these fights. But I detest cowardice. It's one of the, I mean, when women fantasize about guys, they usually don't fantasize about the cowardly guy who sucks his thumb and cries in a corner, right? Mm-hmm. Watching Bridget Jones' diary while eating ice cream. They fantasize about the fireman or the, the Navy SEAL because those archetypes reflect attributes that we desire, which is bravery, courage. And so one of the things that I talk about in, in the book is that, regrettably, academia doesn't select for that attribute. I always argue that academics should be intellectual Navy SEALs, right? Mm-hmm. We choose Navy SEALs based on, in part, their bravery and their courage, their willingness to go where others would be running away from. Mm-hmm. Well, we should be doing the same thing in academia, right? You, you should go and criticize Islam if you think it's not a good belief system. You should criticize radical feminism. But that's not what happens in academia. In academia, we, people are selected based on herd mentality. Just do your research, put your head down, only speak about the the very narrow areas of expertise that you have scientifically, and then keep your mouth shut. 
And I find that that's a, a terrible way to, to live as an intellectual. And so, yes, cowardice is something that I despise. How do you move forward, I guess, when there's no diversity of thought or philosophies on campus, when you have these like forbidden truths or forbidden topics, like you're not allowed to talk about Islam, for example, um, which you do a lot on your Twitter and you do throughout the book. And I never really thought about it, but I, it is curious that it, you can't really criticize it or critique it or even just kind of examine it critically, whereas you can mock Christianity all the time and that's totally fine. And even like, you know, you can mock Jews and that's still kind of fine. But Islam is one of those untouchables. So I guess where, when did that start happening? And then how do we create diversity of thought when we have these forbidden topics? Right. So several things to unpack. First, to give you a sense of the lack of diversity of thought, one of the things that I talk about in the book is the distribution of political affiliation of the professors. So, for example, you could say, okay, across sociology departments, how many of the professors are affiliated with the Democratic Party versus the Republican Party? And you could do a similar thing in, say, Canada, where I reside. And the, the numbers are astoundingly horrifying. The more prone to being parasitized by ideological beliefs a discipline is, the more it tilts to being exclusively leftist. So engineering or the business school where I'm housed, while it still might be more leftist, it's much less so because building a bridge requires certain commitment to reality that idea pathogens can't destroy. You can't build a bridge based on postmodernist thought. You can't build a bridge based on uh, feminist physics. Uh, and you can't build mathematical models of consumer choice or of the economy if you're in the business school based on feminist economics. And so because those fields are rooted in downstream consequences linked to reality, it becomes a bit more difficult to, to be parasitized. On the other hand, in fields like sociology and that kind of stuff, then you, you know, in some cases you've got ratios of 44 to one, mm -hmm. right? So there are 44 times more leftist professors than there are, say, Republicans. Now, some people will then retort, but that makes perfect sense, Professor Saad. I mean, academics are smart, and so, of course, they're going to be leftists, which I address that kind of imbecilic position in the book. On some issues, it's a evolution is a scientific fact. So there, there is no biology department where some biologists believe in evolution and some don't. That's resolved. But when it comes to is the death penalty something that we should have? What should be our optimal fiscal policy? What should be our foreign policy? There are valuable positions on both sides of the aisle. So it's not as though there is only one set of positions that are veridical and everybody else is wrong. And so if you are a student in political science or sociology or economics, it would seem like we should have diversity of thought because many of these discussions are not established scientific facts where we can listen to both sides of the story and actually be enriched from it. But unfortunately, that's not what academia has become. And so the only way to reverse that is to for people to speak out against these sterile echo chambers. And again, regrettably, I'm one of the few in academia who does so, certainly the one who does it with the least amount of fear. Mm -hmm. And across as many topics, so for example, Jordan Peterson became famous for his gender pronoun stuff, mm -hmm. but he doesn't talk against Islam, right? Whereas there is no sacred cow in, in my book. Mm -hmm. Everything is open to scrutiny. Everything is open to mockery. Everything is open, right? No ideology that is true should be 
protected from scrutiny. If it is true, then it should, it should be able to withstand any stressors and still come out victorious. The reason why you, you put these echo chambers that, that protects an ideology is because it's actually fragile. It's because if you do scrutinize it, it might become brittle and fall apart. So uh, regarding your question about forbidden knowledge, so let me give you an example of forbidden knowledge. As an evolutionary psychologist, one of the topics that I study are evolved sex differences. There are mm -hmm. many things that make men and women similar to one another, but there are many things that make men and women different from each other for very clear biological and evolutionary reasons. Well, that itself has now become a form of forbidden knowledge because if the sex difference that you study, if the findings come out in support of the politically correct orthodoxy, then it's Thank you, Dr. Saad. What a great scientist you are. If the findings come out not in support of your orthodoxy, boo, boo, Nazi, Nazi. And so again, this shows you what happens when you have scientific pursuits being parasitized by ideology. It's a dreadful idea. So his... Science always been politicized. I recently had Dr. Deborah So on, and she's doing a lot of work when it comes to sex and gender identity. And she just has the mob after her constantly, also Canadian. It just seems like we abandoned reason a long time ago when we say trans women are women because you wouldn't have to transition, right? If you already were the thing that you said that you are. And it's at the detriment of like children and adults that maybe aren't in these categories. So it seems like the people that are like trying to protect everyone are actually doing more harm than good. And then science is kind of cowering because they don't want to have to deal with the, as you call it, like the tyranny of the minority. So can't you be, isn't everyone aware that this is the minority and can't they just like stand up and kind of puff up their chest metaphorically and just say enough is enough? So that kind of goes back to your earlier question about cowardice. I always argue that, I mean, there is an established list of seven deadly sins, and I think we should add an eighth one, which is human cowardice, because you are exactly right that this, the silent majority is well aware that many of these ideas are dreadful, but they're, they're cowed into silence, right? So I receive more emails than you have hair on your head where someone says, oh, I'm a professor of internal medicine, I'm a professor of physics, I'm a professor of consumer psychology, you're my hero, thank you so much, but please don't mention my name if you read my email. Well, therein lies the problem, right? I mean, if you can't even publicly support the, the things that I'm saying, that's why these idea pathogens proliferate, because they go unchallenged. Now, oftentimes people ask me, well, but Dr. Saad, aren't you exaggerating how many social justice warriors there are on campus? And I tell them, actually, no, here's my rebuttal. How many people did it take to bring down the Twin Towers? It didn't take 190,000 terrorists. It didn't take 19 million terrorists. It took 19 committed terrorists who were very much driven by their zealotry to bring, mm -hmm. to alter the landscape of New York forever. Well, it doesn't take 19 million you know, blue-haired feminist glaciology majors to keep the rest of us quiet. It just takes a bunch of ultra-fierce activists to then keep everybody else in check. And so if people were to find their spine somewhere within their gelatinous bodies, <laughs> then I think we could solve this problem by next Wednesday. But if they don't, then it will be a slow ride to the abyss of infinite lunacy. 
I totally agree. You used the analogy was the death by a thousand cuts for the Western civilization. And I couldn't agree more. I don't think you lose your freedoms overnight. I think it's always like very slow takes that everyone just says, oh, well, that's fine. It's not a big deal. And then eventually you get something that's, you know, like the Holocaust, for example, right? It didn't happen overnight. It was all these small ways to dehumanize a group of people. And you see that now, especially when it comes to men, like especially if you're a white, hetero, Western man, like that is like the most evil creature to ever exist. And I don't understand why we're all accepting this narrative, especially when there's so many of that, you know, person in existence. You don't really share a lot with your family, but do you have like a daughter or a son or do you not like disclose that? I mean, I have both. I won't share how many or yeah. how they are. But yes, uh, oftentimes my my wife has asked me, you know, you, you lead a very busy life. You, if you only stuck to your you know, academic pursuits, your scientific research and so on, you'd be already very busy. Why, why do you have to feel like you have to weigh in on all these things and be the savior? And my answer is, well, it's two answers, really. One, it's because I do it more for my children and yours. You know, I might be, I, I might be able to outrun the problem, but my children and yours won't. Uh, so that's number one. And number two, it goes back to when I talked about earlier that, you know, we are shackled by our unique genetic, you know, makeup. And in my case, I'm driven by a very exacting code of personal conduct so that at the end of the day, when I put my head on my pillow to sleep, for me to be able to not suffer from insomnia, I need to feel that I didn't exhibit any cowardice, that I did whatever I could. So so in the same way that if you hear a woman being accosted violently in a, in a dark alley, you can either be the person who pretends that you didn't hear her crying and keep walking, or you could say, well, I, I have to intervene here. Somebody's in trouble. Well, mm-hmm. in my case, for better or worse, I'm the guy who intervenes, and therefore I weigh in. And I think that if more people were to have that sense of personal responsibility, as I said, I think the problem would be solved very quickly. The problem also comes, and I talked about this in the last chapter of the book, the problem comes from people diffusing responsibility onto others, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm too busy preparing for my daughter's uh, graduation and I have to go pick up the groceries today. Let somebody else worry about these problems. You know, Gatsad has it. It's okay. Mm-hmm. No, because... Every person has a stake. Every person has a voice. Okay, some of us have bigger platforms than others. Some of us have fancier credentials. But the reality is it's, it's ideological trench warfare. So if you're sitting and having a chat with someone on Facebook and they say something that you disagree with, challenge them politely. If your professor says something that you think is insane, challenge them politely. Don't subcontract that important role to a few people who are putting everything on the line. And I think if we do that, we will win the battle of ideas. Mm-hmm. What I see a lot with people, especially on social media, it's they're reacting in like a very emotional state, right? So when you, I'm reading like all the parenting books right now, and there's one in particular, it's called The Whole Brain Child. And it explains that, especially for toddlers, when they're acting in a way of emotion, that the logical side of their brain is just shut off. Like it, it is detached, can't get there. So you have to do all of these tricks, if you will, to get them to diffuse before you can even begin a logical conversation. So I see a lot of parallels with that in social media. So it's like, how do you have a logical conversation with someone who's currently wrapped up in an emotional state? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So chapter two of my book is about thinking versus feeling. And I actually argue that that dichotomy is these two systems are wrongly being pitted against each other. It's not that we are thinking animals 
or we are feeling animals. We are we use both systems. The problem or the challenge is to know when to activate which system, right? So if if, if I want to take a shortcut so I can get home 10 minutes quicker on my walk and I decide to take a shortcut through a dark alley and I see three young men loitering around, well, I might get an evolved fear response because I'm endowed with the emotional system that says this might be dangerous. And so maybe my heart might start racing. Maybe my blood pressure will go up, which are preparatory mechanisms for a fight or flight mechanism. And so in that case, the fact that my affective system, my emotional system was triggered makes perfect sense. On the other hand, if I'm trying to do well on a calculus exam, triggering my emotional system from now till pigs fly is not going to help me solve the calculus problem. And so I apply that exact explanation to, for example, choosing a presidential candidate. So if we look at the response that people have had regarding Donald Trump, it's all what you were talking about, sort of the emotional hysteria. He's disgusting. He repulses me. He's grotesque. Every one of those positions is perfectly rooted in an affective-based evaluation. At no time did people say, here are his policies you know, regarding foreign policy that I don't like. On the other hand, when it comes to Obama, why do I love him? Because he is lanky and he's got a radiant smile and he, he has a mellifluous voice. Again, it's all emotional based mm-hmm. thing, right? Some of my very good friends, some of whom you might know, you know, also public intellectuals have completely succumbed to their emotional systems. They, they, they've made a career out of supposedly being mm-hmm. rational, reasonable people. But when it came to Donald Trump, that all went out. They became the toddlers that you are speaking about in that book that you're reading, uh, because only their emotional system is activated. You know, I don't think there's a magic way to say, know when to activate which system, but at least be aware that you are engaging in this. So one of the things that I do to try to bring people back from their emotional hysteria is to use satire and sarcasm as one of the persuasion strategies, because that is an incredibly effective way of demonstrating the lunacy, the absurdity of your position. And oftentimes I joke, although um, it's true, that my satire proves to be prophetic. And the reason I'm able to prophesize all these things is because I sort of think about a current position that we're at, and then I extrapolate to how far can this lunacy go? I, I then satirize that position, and then I wait with my arms folded for reality to catch up, right? So, for example, so to go back to the trans issue, which we talked about briefly earlier, I had uh, put out a clip a few years ago where I apologized to the world for my transphobic marriage because I argued that, you know, when I was looking for a, a mate, I had gone under the impression that. You know, women, you know, I should be only looking for a woman that has female genitalia. But now I know, given that I took courses in progressive biology at Wellesley, that, you know, some women have vaginas, other women have nine inch penises. And by me having only focused on women with female genitalia, I was excluding a whole range of other women. Well, guess what? That satirical piece subsequently became reality. There's then an insult that people now use that where they call you cis sexist. Have you, have you heard that term? Do you, do you know? I read it in your book and I was like, this isn't real, but I guess it is. And then it actually made me think of this one situation. So not surprisingly, the adult industry is completely liberal. Like it's as left as you can get. Like there's oftentimes like just like no logic to some of the things that they think. So when it comes to adult content, like 
anything is being shot now. Like if you can think about it, like there is a film for it. So when I was like still shooting, the big thing that was like, you know, you were woke or you were super extreme, like you were an extreme performer if you performed with a trans performer. So when it comes to the industry, like usually anything that's like trans or gay, they all work together. And anyone who's straight, they all work together because the testing protocols are different. Like you can be HIV positive and shoot in the gay side, but you can't be HIV positive and shoot in the straight side. So for a long time, there was this divide. So that's why some people started shooting with the trans performers to like make this statement. There was this one girl who was like, no, I just, I don't want to shoot with a trans performer. She wasn't into it. She vocalized it on Twitter. The mob came after her. She was transphobic or I guess what was it? What's the new term? Cis, cis So she had a swarm of people come at her and she was already kind of battling some like depression and other mental disorders. So she ended up committing suicide because she ended up, it was the entire industry went after her and they're like, this isn't wrong. Like you need to have sex with whoever they sh- you know put on set that day and i think that's crazy like there's girls that are like i don't want to work with this type of person or this race or and it's for whatever reason it could be like the way that the the scene is projected right and all of a sudden you're racist or you're a transphobe or all of these things since when did complete strangers have the right to tell you who you have sex with and who you fall in love with. That's crazy to me. One of the things that I talk about in the book is uh, I have a section titled All Roads Lead to Bigotry. And the beauty of that sort of woke logic is that you can't falsify or you can't escape the ultimate outcome, which is that you're a Nazi bigot. So for example, Mm -hmm. if I say just because of the random genetic combination that makes who I am, I'm very attracted to black women. If I say that, then I am a bigot because I am objectifying the black body. I am fetishizing the exoticism of of black women. If I say, you know, I'm actually not attracted to black women. I'm actually attracted to women that look like you. Well, then I'm a racist. I'm a sexual racist because what? So if I uniquely I'm attracted to black women, I'm a Nazi bigot. And if I'm uniquely not attracted to black women, I'm a Nazi bigot. So I can't escape being a bigot. I'll give you uh, manifestations of this kind of unfalsifiable position in a few other contexts, not necessarily in the, in the mating context. Two other examples that I discuss in the book when I'm in that section on all roads lead to bigotry is are the following. So one There was a doctoral student at Hebrew University who was conducting a study to demonstrate that the IDF soldiers, the Israeli Defense Forces, you know, were these monsters who were just engaging in gang rapes of Palestinian women. She 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 was herself Jewish, so but she is so woke that she there's nothing more progressive than to self-flagellate about how disgusting you are, right? So she wanted to show that the IDF were these you know gang rapists and. To her dismay, when she ran the study, she didn't find a single instance of a documented case of an IDF soldier raping a Palestinian woman. So you would think that's that's great news. That's something that's nice to report. And then it ended up being that it was because they weren't raping the women that they were so like just disgusted with them that they couldn't rape them. They're so othering the, these women that they're not even worthy of being raped. So to rape women is bad and to not rape them is bad. Mm-hmm. Let me give you one other example that's not quite as shocking, but along the same lines of lunacy. A student at Queen's University in, in Canada 
wanted to demonstrate that Canadians are a bunch of rabid Islamophobes. And so she donned a hijab for, I think it was 18 days. And she wanted to document that, you know, she's, she's just going to be brutalized everywhere. And she found out that Canadians were incredibly sweet and respectful and kind and charming and warm and smiley to her. What did she conclude? Do you remember that part of the book? I think it was because they were unaware of their bigotry or they were making up for it. Like they knew that they were, so they had to like, you know, prove that they weren't by overextending. Exactly. Very good. So because their hatred is latent, they are overcompensating by being nice to the hijab woman. So had they been overtly bigoted towards her, they're bigots. And when they're incredibly kind and sweet towards her, they're bigots. You can't escape it. Now, in science, we have something called the falsification principle. This was developed by a philosopher of science named Karl Popper, who argued that for something to be within the realm of science, it has to be at least falsifiable, meaning that if the data comes out this way, this is in support of the theory, but here's the way by which if the data came out this other way, it would falsify the theory. If something can't be potentially falsifiable, then it can't be within the realm of science. Well, this, is, this demonstrates to you how woke progressive logic is within the realm of the religious because it cannot be falsifiable. All roads lead to bigotry. Mm-hmm. Is there like a certain personality type? Has anyone done a study on this for the people that tend to be extreme progressives? Yeah, that's so with one of my students, I'm actually looking at doing exactly that. I'm more interested in focusing in, in this particular study on some of the morphological features. So in, in your case, I think you're talking about personality traits. Mm-hmm. And, and I can certainly offer some hypotheses as to which types of personalities I think would be susceptible to this kind of parasitic thinking. But in the study that I'm hoping to do with this particular graduate student, it really stems from my section in the book where I talk about uh, male social justice warriors as sneaky fuckers. This is a a theory that I developed. So sneaky fuckers is an actual scientific term. Which I didn't know and I think is hilarious. Yeah. So (laughs) sneaky fuckers is a term that came out in the zoological literature about, you know, maybe 40 years ago in the 70s. And it refers to, so the, fa- the fancy scientific term is kleptogamy, which is the, the stealing of mating opportunities, right? Usually, typically what you have is what's called a sexual female mimicry. So what you're doing is, let's say you have two types of males in a particular mm-hmm. species. Some males, so there are two phenotypes, two physical manifestations of, of males in that species. Some are sort of the dominant males that get all the girls, but then some other males for just due to genetic variation, don't have some of those masculine traits. So therefore, what they do is they pretend to be females so that if the male is guarding, say, a bunch of females, the, the sneaky fucker will come up. And then if the dominant male thinks that he, he's a female, he lets them through and then he surreptitiously engages in, in some copulation opportunities. And so you are stealing, you know, under false pretense, these mating opportunities. And so... Being aware of that literature, I then proposed a theory, which most famously people know it from when I first chatted with Jordan Peterson on my show, and I proposed that theory to him. It's one of the rare times where Jordan Peterson kind of let out a big smile when I (laughs) shared that theory. I basically argued that I think what male social justice warriors are doing is a manifestation of that sneaky fucker strategy, which is 
look at me. I'm so empathetic. I'm so nurturing. I'm so progressive. I'm not threatening. Now, you also see that, by the way, in popular culture, say in movies, and I talk about this briefly in the book, the 1980, I think it was 1985 movie, Pretty in Pink, there's the classic manifestation of the sneaky fucker is the best friend of the main female protagonist who kind of has this long lasting crush on her. And he's always there and he's always sweet and he's always listening to her, hoping that eventually her defenses will break down and he will get his mating opportunity. And so one of the things that I'm hoping to do with this particular student is to actually test this empirically by, for example, demonstrating that there are certain morphological features of the male sneaky fucker that are different from, say, the morphological features of a Navy SEAL. I suspect that most male social justice warriors don't look like Navy SEALs. I can't wait to see that. That's going to be fascinating. I think you're going to hit the nail on the head. I really love that part of the book where you're comparing biology of like animals and and then relate it to people and what you see now in, in culture. You were talking about like the really bright frogs in the Amazon and then <laughs> you see that now with like the hair and the piercings and everything. And I don't know if anyone's like made that comparison yet, but it it does make a lot of sense when you think about it. That's why I'm the pioneer. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it actually comes from, again, my evolutionary study. So one of the tools that evolutionary psychologists use is a field called comparative psychology. Comparative psychology is where you look at the behaviors of other animals to be able then to make statements about, say, human cognition. Okay. So for example, the fact that I linked the sneaky fucker strategy to male, that came from my understanding of that behavior in other animals. The fact that I called the book The Parasitic Mind and the fact that I talk about idea pathogens, that came from my having read the literature on neuroparasites in other species, right? Mm -hmm. The idea being that parasites are an endemic problem in nature, but parasites can, can parasitize different organs, right? You could have a tapeworm that parasitizes your intestine, right? But neuroparasites are the ones that look for the host's brain to then alter its neural circuitry. And so in learning that literature, this is how I had my aha moment to link it then to idea pathogens, that humans can be parasitized by parasitic ideas. And so to come to the example of the you know blue-haired social justice warriors, in my first book, in The Evolutionary Basis of Consumption, I talk about how there's a huge market for duplicitous signaling in the consumer market, right? You, you go to Canal Street to purchase a $50 Prada bag instead of spending $5,000. Hopefully, nobody will know that it's not a $5,000 bag, and therefore, I've engaged in deceptive consumer signaling. Well, in developing that section of the book, I then said, well, let me go and look at other animal species that engage in this type of signaling. And that's how I came across, so this, this book was in 2007, this is how I came across the, the area, what's called aposematic coloring. Aposematic coloring is the evolution of warning colors. Typically, evolution does the opposite. Evolution creates camouflaging, right? Mm -hmm. I want to be camouflaged so that I don't become somebody's dinner. Right? So why would the Amazonian frog that lives in a very dangerous neighborhood with all sorts of very hungry predators, why would it evolve such bright colors that you could see from three miles away? Well, it's basically saying, if you can see me, you probably want to avoid me. Now, the reason why it's related to deceptive signaling is because one Amazonian frog will evolve those signals because it truly is poisonous. Another species 
will piggyback on that signal. It too will evolve that bright coloring, even though it is completely harmless. So it is piggybacking on the evolution of that warning signal. Mm-hmm. And so being familiar with that literature, I then said, aha, I keep seeing all these mugshots of social justice warriors with blue, blue hair and red hair. I said, that's the explanation. So that's where that came from. Mm-hmm. I just saw your video with you in the blue wig under the desk when Jordan Peterson's book came out. <laughs> it was amazing. Well, by the way, this is, this is one of the things that some people don't, don't get, which is they think that, and it actually speaks to a lack of confidence. When, when you are truly confident, you present yourself to the world in all of your multifaceted view, right? So I can be a joker. I could be funny. I could be self-deprecating. I could be egotistical. I could be professorial. I could be austere. But sometimes people think, oh, you know, should a professor really be doing the blue thing under the, the desk? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. called, I will use any strategy to persuade you of some position I'm taking. In some cases, I will act like the court jester. In other cases, I'm about as professorial and highfalutin as you want to be. If I'm speaking at Stanford University Business School, I'm not wearing a blue wig. But I think most professors, again, because they, in a sense, don't have a fully formed complete personality, they think that they always need to be smoking a pipe while looking into the sky and pontificating. As a professor, I need to always be serious. No, I can be a joker. I can be warm. I could be serious. I'm made up of many parts. Mm -hmm. That's something that I've been struggling with personally, just because of obviously like my given career path, like people put you in this box and that's all that you're allowed to be. So then when you start voicing opinions on anything other, like they're like, well, who are you? You're supposed to only live, breathe, and drink that one thing. And then if you have an opinion on you know, something that is going to affect your child or your other businesses, like how dare you, you need to just remain where we're comfortable with you, which is right there and being like this object. Back to like being a professor and like the whole academia. So I feel like culture kind of moves in a pendulum. So we're always going from one extreme to the next and just like pivoting. And I've yet to see like a happy middle. So do you think that because we're so far left and it's so rare to be critically thinking or con- like dare you say conservative right now, do you think that there's going to be a swing in the other direction or or you think we're so far left that we can't go back? I'd like to put on my optimist's hat because otherwise there'd be no point in getting out of bed and talking to you uh, if I thought it was all for not if it was over. So mm-hmm. I do think that there will be a correction. I think that the pendulum will swing. The question is how quickly will it swing? People are not going to go away to the abyss of infinite lunacy quietly forevermore. At, at some point, keep wrongly accusing people of being white supremacists and white nationalists uh, and all the rest of the stuff. And at one point, people are going to say, you know what, I'm, I've had enough. Mm-hmm. And when they'll say, I've had enough, their response may not be gentle over Twitter. It might be violent. Mm-hmm. And again, I come from a culture that is the end result of all this kind of nonsense of superstitious thinking and magical thinking and tribalism and identity politics. So the question is, do we want the correction to happen peacefully through the, just the battle of ideas? Mm-hmm. Or do we want it to be violent? Now, if you keep this nonsense going for another 20, 30, 50, 100 years, then you will have violence. And the reality is we saw some of that violence in the, recently in the United States. It wasn't full-blown civil war of Lebanon, but mm-hmm. 
eventually these parasitic ideas blow up literally i mean not figure i mean literally right people mm-hmm. and so i'd like to think that there's going to be a correction but it's going to end up being determined by whether the silent majority grows a pair and if they do then as i said the problem can be very quickly resolved look mm-hmm. if administrators and universities felt sufficient consequences to promulgating some of the stupidity that they do on campuses they would correct things by tomorrow mm-hmm. but if everybody is quiet you know I'll, I'll give you an example so candice so last year my university instituted a new policy where you couldn't even continue being employed at the university or if you were a student you you couldn't be registered if you didn't officially take a you know sex dynamics seminar so imagine from my perspective I'm someone now in my 50s and my university has to teach me how to interact with women because until then I didn't know how to interact I I needed the big brother that's very offensive to me now at that point I thought you know I, I'm not going to fight this particular fight I already fight a million things but now come back to me and say self-flagellate because you are guilty against the native indigenous people of Canada well then we're going to have a problem so the reality is administrators overwhelmingly and politicians are overwhelmingly cowardly they basically acquiesce to the loudest voices if the loudest voices are the blue-haired activists then that's who will you know shape the agenda mm-hmm. but if people speak out it will be corrected so to answer your question in a long-winded way there will be an autocorrection i don't know how long it will take before it happens you had mentioned something about one of the teachers for one of your children was pushing like the blm propaganda in class i think it was was it like just a picture or they were talking about it or an avatar avatar, avatar. And their sort of science e room whatever it's called so how when you went to the administration about that being inappropriate like what was your approach because i know there are are a lot of parents that have issues with people bringing in social justice issues especially for small children but they don't really know how to articulate it to like the powers that that be so like how did you approach it and how would you tell parents to approach it so that particular story along with my exact email that i had written to the principal is on my youtube channel so you can go and sort of cover every single detail but to answer it generally what what I did basically is I wrote a very polite email saying you know it has come to my attention that this teacher is doing this and I said that there are two levels at which this is problematic so it was very no hysteria no emotional no you know very now I've got my professorial hat mm-hmm. and I said look number 1 it is not within the realm of a teacher's responsibility to signal what her political positions are in the service of her pedagogic duties if she decides that she's got a private facebook page or whatever social media where she wants to say i love blm and blm is the end all we live in a free country go for it but in the pursuit of your pedagogic responsibility to children you shouldn't be allowed to do that that's a violation of your pedagogic responsibilities and then i gave the example i said i don't teach you know young children and i'm someone who certainly does weigh in on all of these things in a very public way but i make sure to never encroach on those topics in the service of my professorial duties if i'm teaching a course on you know evolutionary consumer psychology i don't talk about you know blue-haired feminists that's not relevant to that course 
And if I were to do that, then I would be encroaching on the contract between me and the students. Mm -hmm. And so that was my first line of arguments, which is that you are violating the pedagogic responsibility that you are contracted to adhere to. And then I said, but foregoing that for a moment, that notwithstanding, do you know what BLM supports? Because I know that most people are cognitive misers. So all that they see is, aren't you for supporting black people? But that's not what BLM does, right? Mm -hmm. So I said, look, here are some positions that BLM takes. And as far as I know, some of the students in in this teacher's class are white people, are white kids. Is it appropriate to engage in such anti-whitism or, you know, black supremacy? So it was, I lead her to the decision calmly with force, but politely. I don't know if she did it because of me or not. The next day, that avatar was no longer there, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the, the, the bigger story is that I got engaged, right? I could have said, you know, I already weigh in on all these issues in ways that more people will ever do in 10 lifetimes. Let someone else worry about this. No, now I was a parent and Mm -hmm. I had something to say. So again, I think most people would say, I don't think I've got the ability to take this on. Someone's going to accuse me of racism. And so I'm going to be quiet. And that's where I think you mentioned earlier my honey badger story. So in chapter Mm -hmm. eight, I talk about activate your inner honey badger. The reason why I use that comparison again, using an animal comparison, is because honey badgers are extraordinarily fierce. Uh, a honey badger is the size of a small dog, and yet it could withstand the approach of you know, six adult lions. Well, how, how could that be? Well, because the lions are actually intimidated by its ferocity. They look at how it's behaving and say, I don't want any part of this. I'll go get a, a, a meal elsewhere. Well, I ask people to exhibit that kind of ferocity in defending their principles. Right? I'm not asking him to be hysterical and ferocious and mean for no reason. But if you have a set of beliefs that you can well ar- you know, articulate well, defend well, then be a honey badger. And in that case, I was a honey badger. So when it comes to instilling like critical thinking in like your kids or even in yourself, what are some basic principles to get into a critical mind versus an emotional mind? One of the things that I talk about, so this is in chapter seven, I talk about how to seek truth. And there I talk about the building nomological networks of cumulative evidence. So what what does that mean exactly? Uh, This is the ultimate, if you like, critical thinking tool. So if you think back of Charles Darwin, when he was developing his theory of natural selection, he didn't collect data from, you know, 30 undergrads at the University of Miami and then call it a day. Instead, for several decades, he collected assiduously data from paleontology and geology and comparative morphology and animal husbandry and biodiversity. So from many, many different lines of evidence, he collected data, which when put together, it made it unassailable that his position was the correct one. And so I argue that whenever you are taking a position on consequential matters, you have to have that kind of discipline. So I'll give you a specific example. And so I call this nomological networks of cumulative evidence, because what you're basically doing is you're getting data from across time periods, across cultures, across disciplines, across methodologies, all of which point to the same final conclusion. So it becomes very difficult to argue against your position because there's a tsunami of evidence that's drowning you. Mm -hmm. And so let's suppose, Candace, I want to 
you said you have a, a young child, so you're going to buy him or her some toys. Well, if I want to prove to you that toy preferences have a, a sex specificity, meaning little boys prefer certain toys and little girls prefer other toys, and that that's not due to social construction. Mm-hmm. The, the typical social scientist argument is that's due to, you know, parents are just arbitrarily sexist. They promulgate gender roles. And that's why little Johnny gets the blue truck. And that's why little Linda gets the pink doll, right? Mm-hmm. And that starts a cascade of arbitrary gender role socialization. So if I wanted to prove to you that actually, no, that's not true. There are very compelling biological and evolutionary reasons why we see that particular sex specificity in toy preferences. How would I go about doing that? So now I'm going to start thinking, well, what would be all the data that I could amass to make it absolutely unequivocal that I'm right? Okay, so I could get data from other animals. So this is comparative psychology again. So I can bring you data studies from with vervet monkeys, with rhesus monkeys, with chimpanzees, showing you that the infants in those species exhibit the same sex specificity as human infants. Well, that's looking like pretty strong evidence. So even if I, had, if I stopped right there, I'm already winning the argument, but I'm not going to stop there. That's why I'm going to build this cumulative network of evidence, okay? So then I could get you data from developmental psychology. So I could get you children who are in the pre-socialization stage of their cognitive development, meaning that they're not yet old enough to be socialized. And I could do studies with them demonstrating that they already exhibit those sex-specific toy preferences. So that takes out the possibility that it's due to socialization because I'm getting you children that are in the pre-socialization state. Now, again, if I took the comparative psychology data with the other animals and the developmental psychology data, I already have enough. The nail is already in the coffin, but I'm not going to stop there. So I won't do the whole network, but I'll give you a few more. So I could get you data from pediatric endocrinology. So there is a condition called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is a endocrinological disorder that if a little girl suffers from, she has masculinized behaviors, masculinized morphology. Okay. Well, the studies have been done looking at the toy preferences of little girls who suffer from congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And guess what happens to their toy preferences? They become akin to those of boys, mm-hmm. suggesting that there's definitely a hormonal signature to toy preferences. So bit by bit, I get you data from other cultures, other time periods, other animals, which is so overwhelming in the convergent validity of the same finding that it becomes overwhelming. So now, the challenge with this approach is that, look, it takes a lot of effort to amass this, right? Mm-hmm. You might say, who's got the time, uh, Professor Saad, to sit and build such neurological networks? Well, if it is on truly consequential issues, then you, you have to do that. Because, so for example, I, ha- I always tell people that you have to have epistemic humility, which means what? Know what you know and know what you don't know. So if I am asked to appear on some show to speak about things that I know, I walk with someone with all the swagger of someone who knows. But if you were to ask me now, Candace, so what do you think about the legalization of marijuana? My answer is going to be a very humble one, which is, you know, I just don't know enough. I haven't built the right network to Mm -hmm. be able to definitively pronounce a position. So I'll pass. I just don't know enough about it. So I think on truly consequential issues, don't let hysteria and emotions run your decisions. Put in the effort 
you know, and especially today, I mean, with Google and the democratization of knowledge, you know, it used to be in the past that if you wanted to access scientific journals, for example, it was reserved to people who were in academia. Today, anyone can access anything. So on consequential issues, you can't be a cognitive miser. You have to put in the effort in pronouncing a position. So when you're doing the research on a topic that you find important, especially if you're just like a regular person without like a scientific background, how do you distinguish between real scientific articles and fake ones? Like ones that are just like pseudoscience? At the most basic level, there are certain ways by which we can establish whether a journal is you know, highly respected. So for example, there are journals that have what's called impact factors, like, you know, which basically captures how often are the papers in those journals cited by other academics, right? So mm-hmm. a journal, let's say, so if we go in the behavioral sciences, a journal like BBS, uh, Behavioral and Brain Sciences, is extraordinarily prestigious because the papers that are published in that journal end up being cited tremendously. Well, that's a measure of the fact that other scientists highly value the papers in that journal. That's why they cite them in their own work. Mm-hmm. If, on the other hand, you, you have a journal that, you know, on average, a typical paper gets cited zero one times ever, then this is probably a journal that is not one that you can, you know, re- rely on. Now, the reality is that the peer review process is supposed to, in a sense, take care of that, right? Because mm-hmm. the peer review process for your viewers and listeners who may not know, whenever we send a paper to an academic journal, it gets vetted in, in an incredibly brutal way, which again speaks to the importance of no idea should be unchallenged, right? Mm-hmm. Why is it that when I send a paper to a journal, it gets butchered down to every last syllable, but Islam can't be criticized, right? So scientific work only gets published if it's been vetted very, very rigorously through the peer review process. Now, different journals will have different standards. So, for example, now you have the proliferation of many what are called predatory journals that have a very, very poor peer review process because all they care about is for the authors to pay to publish in those journals. Well, you should probably avoid those outlets when you're building your nomological network. But mm-hmm. the, the classic journals that you know, we rely on, you know, there are very easy ways to know whether a journal is reputable or not. Right. Because you, in the book, you mentioned a bunch of articles that were getting submitted just to like see if journals would take them. And some of them were like, they're like, there's no way, like I have no scientific background whatsoever. And you're like, this is so obvious. So one of them was like the dog park rape culture. And then the other one was somehow penises are causing climate change. And like these got approved. And you're like, in what world do those things even make sense? When I discuss those papers, uh, papers and quotes in, in, in my book, it really is to demonstrate the lunacy of postmodernism, right? And, and I call postmodernism the, the granddaddy of all idea pathogens because postmodernism basically purports that there are no universal truths. Everything is shackled by subjectivity. Everything is shackled by personal biases. So to argue that there is such a thing as an objective truth is, is nonsense. That's according to postmodernism. Mm-hmm. Now, you can imagine how that is a terrible idea pathogen because scientists do wake up every morning under the working premise that there are truths to be discovered. Now, scientific truths are provisional in that what we thought was true in science 300 years ago gets revised, right? There are no revealed truths. 
if tomorrow someone falsifies Darwin's theory of natural selection, they won't. But if they did, well, then we're back to the drawing board. So mm-hmm. we pursue truths and then it gets updated and autocorrected. But postmodernism throws that out the window. It says that there's nothing that's true. So in 2002, one of my doctoral students had just defended his dissertation. And he said, we said, okay, let's go out for, for a celebratory dinner. So it was myself. We, we didn't have any kids yet. It was myself, my wife, my doctoral student, and his date for the evening. And so before the, we got together, he warned me that this particular date was a graduate student in you know, radical feminism, another idea pathogen, postmodernism, and cultural anthropology. So kind of the holy trinity of bullshit. And so he was telling me this, let's not get into fights, let's have a good time. And I'm like, oh, no, no, I got you, no problem. I'm going to be on my best behavior. Mom's the word, don't worry. Which, of course, was not going to, I wasn't going to adhere to that. And so about halfway through the evening, I turned to the person in question and I said, oh, I, I hear you're a postmodernist. He goes, yes. I said, there are no universal truths? Yes. I said, uh, do you mind? Because I'm an evolutionary psychologist, so I do operate under the premise that there are certain truths. Uh, do you mind if I propose some truths and then you can tell me how I'm, I'm wrong? Go for it. Is it not a universal truth that for homo sapiens, humans, uh, only women bear children? This is in 2002, by the way, way before the whole trans uh, craze. Is it not true that only women bear children? No. She scoffs. She, she looks at me with disgust and horror, rolls her eyes. I said, no? How is that the case? She said, well, there's some tribe off some Japanese island where within their mythological folkloric realm, it is the men who bear children. So by you restricting the conversation to the biological realm, you know, that's how you keep us barefoot and pregnant. And so after I recovered from my mini stroke, I then asked her, okay, well, maybe it's too controversial for me to state that only women bear children. So let me take a less controversial case. Is it true that since time immemorial, sailors have relied on the fact that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And then she, there she used a subset of postmodernism. It's called deconstructionism. Language creates reality. Where she said, well, what do you mean by east and west? Those are just arbitrary labels. And what do you mean by the sun? That which you call the sun, I call dancing hyena. These are the exact words. I said, okay, well, the dancing hyena rises in the east and sets in the west. To which she answered, I don't play those label games. And so if you have something, now she wasn't some patient who had just escaped from a psychiatric institute. She was a graduate student in postmodernism. So so her brain was fully parasitized by bullshit, right? So that I couldn't find a common intersection of meaning where her and I could have a conversation about what we mean by the sun, east and west, and that women can bear children. She was aping exactly what is taught in those courses. So imagine if that's what you are taught then of course the penis causes climate change. Why not? That's, that's my interpretation. That's my revealed truth. That's my truth. There is no capital T truth, right? So what those papers were trying to demonstrate is how shoddy, how fraudulent all those fields are because they generated all these insane top papers and they were getting in. Now, this, by the way, for your listeners who don't know this, this has been called SoCal 2.0. Because originally in 1996, a physicist, a professor of physics by the name of Alan Sokal, S-O-K-A-L, had generated a, a bullshit article 
to demonstrate how idiotic all this stuff is, where he was arguing that, you know, uh, gravity is a social construct and the hegemony of whatever, all the buzzwords. And he got it into that journal. And then he said, oops, I have an admission to make. Right. And of course, you would think that the people might be embarrassed. But guess what they did? They doubled down. Oh, this proves nothing. We still extracted meaning from your paper. You see, so it's unfalsifiable. Mm-hmm. And so what, what these guys did with the Grievance Studies Project, the, the, those other papers that you're referring to, is they, instead of generating one of those papers, they generated 20 of those papers and then sent them. And I think seven of them had already been accepted in prestigious journals within postmodernism and gender studies and all that. Now, if you're able to generate random gibberish and it gets into the top journals of the field, that's not a very good position for a field to have. No, definitely not. It seems like there's almost like a lack of humility when it comes to postmodernism because it's with the scientific method, you have to be open that you're wrong, right? Like that's the whole part of the hypothesis is that you might be incorrect and then you have to retest. And then with postmodernism is there's no, in no way can you be wrong because there is no wrong. Wrong is a construct. And that, that speaks to our earlier point about falsification, right? Mm-hmm. It, it is part of the scientific method to be able to falsify something. So this is why postmodernism is akin to a secular quasi-religion, right? Because I can't falsify it. Because even when a physicist sends a paper that he then admits was randomly generated bullshit, that doesn't make you cower away into shame. It simply says, but we took meaning from it, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's exactly what you're saying, yes. Yeah. And then you also mentioned that the rise of that was, it's because it gets so confusing and intentionally so that a regular person is like, well, maybe I'm just not intelligent enough to understand. And is that just like our nature is to assume that we're at fault for not being intelligent enough because we're not academics? What you just said is part of a more general phenomenon in psychology called the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error is a common cognitive error that that people commit, whereby they misattribute something. For example, I did well on the exam because I'm smart. I'm attributing the success internally Mm -hmm. versus I could say I did well on the exam because the exam was easy. The professor is nice, right? So do you attribute a phenomenon to internal dispositions or to external situational things? And it turns out that oftentimes people misattribute the causality, right? And mm-hmm. so that example is a manifestation of this because what happens basically, a postmodernist gets up in front of a bunch of impressionable young minds. And he, it's, I say he because the holy trinity of French postmodernist bullshitters are Jacques Lacan, Jacques Derrida, and Michel Foucault, who are three French postmodernists. So I get up and I start pontificating all sorts of random gibberish. Now, the audience faces the fundamental attribution error, which is, I'm not understanding a word that this guy is saying because he's full of BS, or I don't understand what this guy is saying because I'm too dumb to understand his profundity. And I think because most people end up being humble and charitable about this because he is a fancy professor who is lecturing at Princeton, it must be because I'm too dumb. And you can't imagine the number of people who've written to me who've said, you know, until I read your explanation for this phenomenon, I actually was always under the working assumption that I was too dumb. That's why I didn't do well in my postmodernist philosophy class. As a matter of fact, my wife told me that. She said, oh, in college, I took all that obscure French postmodernist stuff. I never understood a word. I always thought it was too deep for me. 
And now I know that it's a bunch of garbage. Now, I think that, so I have a theory, which I think there's an anecdote in the book that somewhat points to the fact that I might be correct, where I argued that the way that these guys started is that they're actually true charlatans. They, They were well aware that they were scamming the world, but that's how they would get the hot, pretty girls on campus, metaphorically speaking, right? It's not fair that only the physicists and the mathematicians are and maybe the neuroscientists are revered. We also have important things to say. Well, one of the ways that I can convince you that I have important things to say is to create a language that's impenetrable. Now, I have a background in mathematics, and I can tell you if you don't speak the language of mathematics and you try to read an academic paper, by the first line, you're out. You can't understand a word. Well, if I am now a postmodernist humanities guy, can I create a language that is as impenetrable as those haughty mathematicians? Well. That's, I'm going to create postmodernist verbiage. And they were able to fool people. And the reason why I know that my theory is correct is because I quote a discussion between Michel Foucault, one of the primary French postmodernists, and an American philosopher by the name of John Searle, where they, they're friends. And John Searle tells Michel Foucault, how come, Michel, when you and I chat with each other, I seem to understand what you're saying, but when I read your stuff, it's so much more confusing. And then in an incredible bout of honesty, candor, Michel Foucault says, oh, well, you know, in France, if you don't confuse people, then they don't take you seriously. So he was actually admitting to doing exactly what I just said. With that knowledge, with that being out there, do they just say, oh, that, that was one person that doesn't speak for the rest of us? I think so, yes. But I do feel that we, we're on the downswing with all the postmodern stuff. It's, it's not dead. It, mm-hmm. you know, it's still come to my university and have a million of these courses. But the inflection point, the highest point, the zenith of the movement, we've already passed it. So I'd like to think that it's on its way out. But again, it will take many more years. Now, the reason, by the way, I'm so forceful against you know, these kinds of idea pathogens, well, one, it's just because of my purity of spirit. I hate attacks on truth. I hate gibberish, right? Mm-hmm. But, but even more pragmatically, Think about the number of students who have lost all sorts of opportunities to get a true education mm-hmm. or all the parents who took out mortgage, you know, whatever, a second mortgage on their homes and went into debt to send their kids to Oberlin College to study feminist glaciology. And then they end up being baristas and Starbucks. And this is not me being facetious. It's, it's literally true. Like they, there is no market for specialists and postmodernist bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. So- it's really a pragmatic thing. Life is about trade-offs. Life is about opportunity costs. I'm not suggesting that everybody should study you know, evolutionary psychology and physics and math. You could study the humanities, but you're still committed to reason, right? You could study Chaucer or Shakespeare. For example, Shakespeare is wonderful to study because those narratives are compelling because they say something really universal about human nature. So you could study philosophy or aesthetics or the humanities in a very serious way. So I'm not suggesting that sociology is bullshit or humanities is bullshit. But if you are studying them in a way that's pure activism, fully decoupled from reason, then you're wasting everybody's time. That's really interesting. So with the attribution error, you said people tend to go inward, right? So that made me think of the internal locus of control versus external locus of control. And then that makes me think of the victimology. 
So with the victimology, it's constantly external, right? Because it's you, the oppressor, someone else is to blame. But then when it comes to the postmodernism, it's all internal because you're like, well, I'm stupid. So that's like a really interesting parallel. The first example with the victimology, by the way, that's I think one of the reasons why people hate Jordan Peterson's message, right? Which mm-hmm. the, the most banal of statements, which is personal responsibility. I mean, how dare he? How dare he? What kind of Nazi is he, right? I mean, I give an example, by the way, speaking of that internal, external locus of control and so on. In the book, when I am contrasting, say, the victimology poker of, say, Jesse Smollett, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't enough that he was a highly overpaid, in my view, actor who, you know, is making more per episode than I make per year. I think I have, I contribute more than he does, but he wasn't satisfied with having won that lottery. For him to truly be validated, he had to also ascend the victimology hierarchy. And if he couldn't, then he would manufacture one. And I contrast that to the environment that I grew up in. And I tell the story of, I did an undergrad in mathematics and computer science, then I did an MBA, and with, always with the goal of continuing to you know, complete a PhD and become a professor. But one of the schools that I had been accepted at for my PhD was at University of California, Irvine. And it so happened that I had one brother who lived in Southern California, who was a very successful businessman, who was trying to convince me to maybe don the proverbial suit before I returned to do my PhD. You know, he was trying to say, why don't you come work with me for a few years after your MBA before you go back into academia? He's an older brother, so I was being respectful. I went and spent a day with him at his, at his work, but I wasn't really moved by it. I knew that I wanted to continue and do my PhD, which I ended up not going to UC Irvine. I went to Cornell. But my mother had heard that my brother was trying to convince me to leave my studies for a while. And so when I returned to Montreal... To, to see my parents, she takes me to another room and she says, well, you know, I heard the story, you know, what was happening. Do you want people to think of you as somebody who dropped out of school? So her position was that someone who had a bachelor's degree in mathematics and computer science and an MBA from McGill University, which is one of the top universities in the world, it's often referred to as the Harvard of the North in Canada. If I stopped after my MBA, it would bring shame as somebody who dropped out of school, right? Now, of course, I didn't go on to get a PhD to please my parents or anything, but that gives you a sense of the standard of excellence, and we're not victims. Now, we were real victims. Mm-hmm. We escaped some horrifying... We, didn't, we weren't Jesse Smollett. We are the real victims who ran really quickly to not have our heads detached from the rest of our bodies in Lebanon, and yet we don't wallow in that victimhood. We recognize it. We tell the story. I, I, I say where I come from, but I don't wallow in it. I want to surmount, overcome my victimhood and do something with my life. And so that speaks to internal, external locus of control because victimology requires that all of your failures be attributed to external causes. So you're exactly right. Yeah. And then there was also a part of your book that was talking about like the homeostasis of victimology and you had to maintain like a certain status quo. So do you think that's because we do live in such like a great society where we don't have these very real issues like a lot of the Middle Eastern countries have, for example, that we're just creating them? Like you you gave um, a couple of, of examples and I've seen them from some of the idiots I used to follow on Twitter, which was Lena Dunham getting outraged by sushi being sold. So I'm Japanese. My dad is from Japan. Like I am by no means offended if I see sushi in a cafeteria, right? So we're starting to create problems where, where there are no problems because we don't have problems. So I feel like that comes from just not being traveled well enough and not 
knowing like what true violence and true oppression actually are. Because if you did, like as a feminist, you wouldn't be complaining about like a supposed wage gap when there's women that are, you know, getting stoned for being raped. Like there are real problems. Or having their clitoris cut off at the age of five. Right. So why is that like not the hill that you're dying on, but you're dying on this other hill that doesn't even exist? So I never understood like that disconnect. Yeah. So cognitive consistency is not one of the hallmarks of uh, progressive no. ideology. So let me just explain, since you brought it up, what my theory on homeostasis of victimology is. So a, a homeostatic system is both explains some of our psychological phenomena, but also many of our physical phenomena. So homeostasis basically is you have some set marker, which then the system will adjust to always maintain that that set point. So for example, the thermostat in your hotel room is a homeostatic system. I set it at 69. If it gets too warm or too cold, the system will adjust accordingly. If my blood sugar goes too low because I'm hungry, then it will tell my brain, go get food. So there are many systems, whether they be physiological systems or psychological systems that are homeostatic in nature. And so I took that principle and I argued that what we, what explains this manufacture this orgiastic desire to always see victimology everywhere is something akin to a homeostatic system. I need to know, to believe that the U.S. is a terrible, racist, evil society. So I need to set the set point of, of bigotry somewhere. And if I can't find those instances, I will then remanufacture you know, what constitutes victimology so that I always reach that set point. And it's very much related to another concept, this is not mine, called concept creep, which comes from a Australian psychologist, where he basically argued that there are many phenomena, whether it be trauma or bullying, that the concept of that term keeps being changed to allow a greater inclusion of phenomena within that, right? So, so now if you silence is violence, mm -hmm. right? So the omission of anything is an act of violence. That's concept creep. That fits within my homeostatic argument, right? If you can't call a woman, now we can argue whether it's objectionable to do so. You should be respectful. Mm -hmm. But if you can't call a woman as she's walking by, that's a form of sexual assault, Right. As a matter of fact, in the training that I had to do last year that I mentioned at, mm -hmm. at my university, they would give you vignettes and then ask you what that was. And I knew what is the answer that they wanted. So if, if you witness a woman being uh, complimented uh, in an objectionable way on campus, is that a sexual violence? So I, I answered no. And then it kind of flags you. No, you're incorrect. And then it explains to you that, no, that is a form of, you know, it's linguistic rape or whatever. Look how much offensive that is to an actual victim of rape. A little girl who's had her clitoris removed or has ha gone through an infibulation of, of her genitalia, what does she feel when she then sees that someone who was a misgendered is a victim compared to the victimology narrative that she has? It's an affront to human dignity, because you are trivializing what true victimology is. 100%. And I just don't know how you change that kind of mindset when you live in such a privileged and civilized society, other than like exposing them to that. It has to be exposure. That's exactly it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why that goes back to your earlier point when you said, how come you don't get canceled? I think <laughs> it's because my victimology story 
keeps people at bay because it always contextualizes the nonsense that you're going to come at me with, with whatever I'm going to throw at you. And so for better or worse, my, my background in Lebanon has served me well later in life. No, that I guess like you must just be bulletproof though, because like I'm pretty opinionated and it took me a while to get comfortable with that just because I thought, you know, maybe I'm going to lose all of my followers and that directly affects like my sales and yada, yada. So again, like I'm Japanese. My grandmother moved to the United States back when they were, you know, rounding up Japanese and putting them in camps. My mom is Jewish from her dad's side and he had to deal with that over in Hungary. There's like a lot of what you you could put me in those like little intersectionality groups if you wanted, right? And then I voiced an opinion and someone called me a Nazi. And I was like, I literally have Jewish blood in me and you're calling me a Nazi. Like, do you know how offensive that is? And they're like, well, there were still Jews that betrayed their own. And I was like, what logic is this coming from? It was like a white man that had like some German soccer player on his avatar, of course. And I was like, this is just... It's comical. It's comical, the connections everyone makes. Well, okay, so you have part Jewish identity. Not enough, I guess. I am Jewville. I <laughs> of being a Nazi. Jordan Peterson and I were canceled. So you were mentioning about being canceled. This was one case where we were canceled. We were both set to speak at an event in 2017 at Ryerson University in uh, Ontario, Canada. And the, the title of the event was The Stifling of Free Speech on University Campuses. And that event was canceled. So the irony is lost on them. Mm-hmm. And the people who, who were the movers of canceling us had put out a Facebook page where they had said, you know, we don't want neo-Nazis, white supremacists, our thing. And then, you know, people were saying, but Gad Saad is a Lebanese, is an Arabic Jew. But he's still a Nazi, right? So there's no way to appeal to their reason. They're mm-hmm. just parasitized by nonsense. I don't know where you go from there. And I mean, so when I did want to ask you about Twitter. So I was going through some of your tweets and then some of them throughout your book, and they're super controversial. And I see a lot of people that are speaking out and getting deplatformed. So I get there's two parts, I guess. So one is you strive on the importance of speaking out and not being like this cowardly person. But I guess, how do you do it when you're getting censored from all of these platforms that are basically monopolized? Life is about trade-offs. It's about weighing the pros and cons. So I, I never tell people to be, you know, reckless martyrs. I understand that people have jobs and they have responsibilities, but then I always draw the following analogy, which turns out to be quite poignant. I say, I understand that you fear losing your job and this and that, but the young men, because they were all men, who landed on Normandy in World War II, did they sign up for that, hoping to have secure assurance that they would not be killed? Or were most of them mowed down like little mosquitoes by German gunners? So the reality is that no war, nothing worth truly fighting for, comes at zero risk. You could engage in a calculus to decide, how much risk you can tolerate. But you simply can't continue to argue that, you know, but I have a family. Some, sometimes people say, oh, but of course for you, professor, it's easy because you're tenured, you could speak your mind. Well, first of all, and I explain this in the book, tenure doesn't protect me from the million death threats that I've received. Tenure didn't protect me when I had to go in 2017 on campus 
accompanied by security to go to my classes where they would then lock the door so that if you left the classroom, you'd have to be let back in to come back into the classroom. Tenure didn't protect me when I would finish my lecture. My wife would pick me up and I would have something akin of a, to an anxiety attack. And this is, uh, you know, Mr. Macho, Navy SEAL guy who he says, oh, my God, thank God I survived another week. I get to be with my family until I have to lecture next week because I don't know who's going to come at me, right? Because mm-hmm. the death threats, they didn't say who they are. They, you know, we're going to boil you this way, Jew, and we're going to kill you this way. We're coming for you, Jew, Jew, okay? So everybody bears a cost. The fact that I'm tenured doesn't mean that I didn't bear a cost. Do you mm-hmm. think some people at my university were happy with all my outspokenness? My chaired professorship hasn't been renewed for three years it wasn't by magic. My CV is a very long CV. Objectively, I should get the chair professorship. I haven't. Other universities that were very interested in hiring me have backed away because of what I do. So we all have a cross to bear. The question is, some of us are more courageous than others, but don't use the argument that, you know, but I have a job, I have a family. We all have families. We all have costs to bear. I'll give you another little snippet of how difficult it can be. You know, I get recognized all the time on the street. It's always been incredibly positive. There's never been someone who's come up to me who, you know, was aggressive or anything. But, you know, it it happens many, many times a day. Sometimes I'm with my family, so I get stressed because they want to take a selfie or a picture. But now here's an example to show you how much anxiety it can cause. One time I was walking out of my house into my driveway and a man passes by and he goes, excuse me. And usually when someone says that, I sort of know what's coming next. And I turn and say, yes. He goes, are, are you got sad? So then I kind of hesitate. I say, yes. He goes, oh, do you mind if I come and shake your hand? So he comes sort of on my property and shakes my hand. And I was very nice. For the rest of the day, I was in an utter panic because now there was someone who knew where I lived. If that guy tomorrow decides he's no longer a fan, if he is a vegan and I post a picture of a steak and that offends him, he just has to go on Twitter and say, here is where Gatsad lived. So we all bear a cost. I have felt certain stress symptoms because of you know what I do that I never felt in the past. So the idea that but you're protected, professor, you're tenured, I'm not, is nonsense. We all have a cross to bear and uh, we should all speak out. Well, I know that you are a very busy man, so I don't want to take too much of your time, but do you want to tell the listeners where they can follow you, where they can buy your book and like any parting messages? I'm all on social media. So at Gadsa, G-A-D-S-A-A-D, if they want to follow me on Twitter, I have a public Facebook page. I have a YouTube channel called The Sad Truth, S-A-A-D, also a podcast. My book, The Parasitic Mind, can be purchased on Amazon through my publisher, Regnery. It's not hard to find me if you want to find <laughs> me. I'm sorry that we didn't get a chance to talk about uh, some of your professional expertise, maybe another time. I know. I'm just going to have to have you back on. That sounds great. It was real, real pleasure talking to you. All right. Thank you so much. Cheers. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have the time, please rate and review. And you can always hit subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes. I hope to have you back.